Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, rap, home and hope in modern Britain with Anifuk Ekpudon and his new book, Where We Come From. Anifuk Ekpudon, otherwise known as Neef, is a writer and journalist from South London who documents the people, voices and communities shaping modern Britain. He has written for The Guardian, British GQ, Vogue, Vice and more and has previously worked with grassroots platforms such as GRM Daily, LinkUp TV and SBTV. He was the recipient of the Barbara Blake Hanna Award at the 2021 British Journalism Awards and the Culture Writer of the Year Award at the 2021 Freelance Writing Awards. In 2022, he was named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in media and marketing. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and today we're here to talk about Neve's debut book, which is Where We Come From. Rap, Home and Hope in Modern Britain. Neef, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, then, how this book came about, I guess, what inspired it? Yeah, so Where We Come From came about, um, I've been writing about British rap and wider Black British music for about 10, 11 years now. And along the way, I guess those genres have, in that time period, those genres have experienced a real explosion in terms of popularity and visibility in um British music, but also just wider British society. And I was really interested in writing a book that explored the roots of those genres, um, UK rap and grime, but also explored like what does the legacy of that success look like? And those two ideas were kind of like the guiding principles when thinking about writing this book and then starting to put it together. I really wanted to explore what are the human lives and stories that inform the genres um, and what does that tell us about the country that we live in today? And I mentioned that you worked in sort of grassroots organisations like SBTV, and these are organisations that feature all the way through the book because they, you know, they often come out of the uh, the community making music themselves. So tell us something about what this was like working for those grassroots organisations. Yeah, in- interesting experiences. A bit um, scattergun at times. It's kind of like working for like I imagine like a startup by just the teenagers and that it was like could be quite chaotic but the beautiful thing about SBTV which was founded by the late Jamal Edwards was that you had so much access to musicians and artists in a way that you would never find I never found with even like the more traditional um, newspapers and magazines I've written for with SBTV we'd be allowed to go and spend the day with gigs uh, who's a 
one of the Britain's most famous rappers from Peckham, we'd be able to go and spend the day with him the day before his album comes out and just talk to him about his life and his shaping of the album and really see what his day-to-day life was like. We did that in Birmingham, we did it in West London, we did it all over the country. So we were really able, as an editorial team, we're able to just go and play with our ideas and be as creative as possible, which I think really helps in shaping the book because by the time I got to the book, I'd really experimented with my style, with my writing style, with my form through those years at SBTV, which was a real blessing. And I think also just being part of being able to see that history unfold in real time, like seeing that real boom around 2014, 2015, as Grimes starts to really hit a second wind. And then you see like a lot of UK rappers start to come through. SBTV was one of the companies that is, I guess, was at the epicenter of that transition. So it was quite an amazing thing to be able to watch that uh, from inside the building, if that makes sense. So tell us what what are you trying to achieve with the book? What are you trying to document? Because it's not like it's not like a A to Z history of British rap and British grime music. It focuses on very specific areas. For instance, you look at um, South London, most obviously, I guess, but also like the West Midlands and perhaps least obviously South Wales. Tell us why those particular areas. Yeah, with the book, I really wanted to really try and capture what does what does actual life like in Britain look like today if you live in communities where rap comes out from if you live in working class communities if you live in like black communities what does what does life actually look like and feel like and what are the experiences and stories that are emanating from these areas and so music was like kind of a, a roadmap and a vessel into exploring and a vehicle into exploring these things um so as you say the book centers in those three regions and then within those three regions each region kind of really centers in on one individual and takes us through their or a few individuals but takes us through like their lived experiences from um, some who were pirate radio, who ran pirate radio stations, others were rappers themselves, others were music managers, but kind of looks at the totality of their lives from some had really traumatic upbringings with violence, abuse in the home, or um, dealt with a lot of grief growing up. And it shows like the role, I guess, a radical role music played, I guess, in almost being a space of healing and transformation for them. So that was what I was really trying to explore with the book, as opposed to like a more standard A to Z of the genres, as you say, I was really trying to look at what is the legacy of the genre, who are the people that have shaped the genres and how has the genres shaped them too. And I really love this approach because you just mentioned, you know, you focus on certain artists in each of those regions, or if not artists, but, you know, certain sort of characters on the periphery of the music scene. But these are not the big names, you know, the, the big names of these genres do float through the book. They're there as sort of background characters. They're mentioned sometimes when they're coming up, sometimes in a little bit more detail. But the artists that you choose to focus on specifically are not the biggest names in the genre. Tell us something about why you decided on that approach as well. Yeah, that was a really important thing for me. As you say, it wasn't like the the, yeah, the huge superstars. It wasn't, uh, I really went the other way because A, like I knew access was a big thing. I knew that with the amount of time I would spend as I said, I, I reported this book over the space of about five years. So I interviewed some of these people over that course of time. And we'd spend like days together. Sometimes I'd just rock up to Cardiff or to Newport and we'd just chat for seven hours or so as they're going about their day and we'd talk about everything. And to get that real depth, in-depth detail um, and I guess introspection from people, I feel like it wasn't necessarily something I'd be able to do with like a really big artist because there's going to be a lot more protection. I think people would be probably a lot more hasty about doing that type of thing and also I think I really wanted to show that though the success of the huge musicians like Stormzy, Little Sims and all of these people is incredibly important and is really beautiful to see that the legacy of the genres isn't necessarily just defined by that alone like the real legacy of the genres or part of a big part of the legacy of the genres is how it's changed and transformed 
some of these people's lives in uh, right across the UK, and they may be the stories that are less close to the limelight, but their stories are just as um, valid and important and are real examples of the power, I guess the transformative power of music in a way, but speaking specifically about UK rap and grime within that. We'll go through these three regions and South London, we'll talk about first of all. This is a, a community, the people making music here are sort of generally second, third generation even immigrant families. And let's talk about where... I guess the sort of history of those communities, where that first wave of immigration was coming from. Yeah, no, definitely. In, in South London, it focuses on, as you say, um, like kind of second and third generation immigrants, either from the Caribbean or from uh, like West Africa and wider Africa too. And uh, it starts within in South London. It starts really starts at, um, with the Windrush generation, with the actual Windrush um, ship that came into the UK, because uh, I think it was about 236 people that came um, off of the actual HMT Windrush, didn't have like a job. They didn't have any jobs lined up or any accommodation lined up. They essentially just like packed their lives into suitcases and just gambled on starting a new life in Britain. And when that, when the British authorities became aware of that, they were like, okay, whilst you take some time to settle in, we're going to have to house you in the, they call them the deep level shelters under Clapham Common, and uh, underneath Clapham South Tube Station. And that was like the beginning. So 236 of them went to stay there for about 10 to a few weeks as they start to find jobs at the Bricks and Labour Exchange and start to find houses they could rent. And that was like the real start of the black community in South London. And that's where I started it, because I think music is as much as obviously music is a thing of itself. It's, of course, a big product of community and culture. And a lot of the cultures that inform the music and the communities that inform the music start with. Um, the Windrush generation that came to the UK in the, I guess, late 40s, uh, 50s and 60s. And yeah, so what sort of musical heritage were these future artists sort of percolating in when they were kids? Yeah, so you'd find a lot of um, a lot of them, especially of this current generation and maybe the generation before of rappers and grime MCs, a lot of them had grandparents or parents who were into reggae, who ran sound systems all throughout South London. You find a lot of generational and family links between like some of the reggae sound systems the jungle sound systems with the UK rappers and grime MCs now. So that was a big part of things. And then, of course, Garage was also a massive part of it, especially in South London with like So Solid Crew, who I talk about. And then kind of that feeds on, I think, uh, drum and bass, all of these different sounds, I guess, like bass sounds that had blended sound system culture with like wider British dance music and some like American hip hop is essentially like the blueprint for British rap in a lot of ways. So a lot of the musicians were around um, that growing up before then grime and UK rap came along. And you sort of alluded to this already, but the waves of immigration to this area change many years later. So how does that affect the music that's made? Yeah, so around the 80s, you have like a big generations of um, West African, East African, Southern African immigrants coming into the UK. And a lot of them settle in South London. I think by the time the 2001 comes about, a lot of the boroughs have like really high populations of black Africans, almost higher than the black Caribbean populations in some boroughs and if not level in other boroughs. And I think that really starts to change the sound in a lot of ways. But I think also it's almost like this weird, like a uh, kind of beautiful, like reconnecting point for like the black diaspora in a lot of ways. You have like a lot of a second generation black African kids starting to make the music of grime and rap and stuff that had come from the sound systems which is quite nice. But then also like stuff like Afrobeat starts to feel its way in, especially in like the uh, late 2010s, um, even early mid 2000s with like Funky House, you start to see a lot of more influence from, uh, I guess, like the African communities who are bringing their sounds from home into the music too. 
to the point now where you have it, so everything's kind of really mixed up between, um, as I say, West African, Caribbean, Somali communities. They all have brought all of these myriad of influences into British rap today. And you mentioned the uh, So Solid crew and, you know, people that are not really paying attention might remember them having a couple of hits in the charts and there being some sort of like, you know, controversy around them. But they play like an incredibly important part in the formation of British rap and grime for a lot mm. of these artists in South London, particularly or anywhere in London, I guess. Tell us something about the importance of So Solid crew to this movement. Yeah, no, definitely. So Solid would be massively important um, on two fronts. I think there's the musical front where they were kind of, they were garage MCs, but whereas the garage MCs before them were kind of almost like hosts on records, they weren't, there wasn't that much space on the records to actually, there wasn't space for lyricism and I guess like huge verses from the MCs. It was more about the instrumentals and, and the singers, whereas they were like one of the first examples of garage MCs who were like spitting full-blown verses on records and they had that big influence from american rap in particular which i think has shaped it eventually shaped what they did eventually evolved into grime um but then i think also on just the cultural level their influence was huge um they had really inspired hope for a lot of younger um, people growing up in the area who had interest in music but never saw a, a road into it so solid were like the first example of somebody who had kicked off the doors and actually found concrete commercial success through this music that had for at that point until that point had just kind of lived in um, the communities that had birthed it in like the inner cities in black communities and working class communities across the country so they were like a real beacon of hope and you see when I spoke to a lot of musicians in South London who were around maybe late 20s early 30s they would all point to So Solid as that shining example of an act that made them feel it was possible for everybody from I guess Krebs and Conan Cadet who's mentioned in the book I think Stormzy said similar before they were like such a big uh, influence and inspiration for an entire generation of people growing up in the region. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anifuk Ekpudom, and we're talking about his debut book, Where We Come From, Rap, Home and Hope in Modern Britain. And Neef, you just at the very end of that first half alluded to the artist that you concentrate on the most in the South London sections, Cadet Blaine Johnson. Tell us something about who he was. Yeah, because uh, he was a rapper from originally uh, raising Clapham and then after that a little bit in Croydon too. And he passed away uh, a few years ago, but he became, he, he'd been um, emceeing since almost like the start of Grime and since Grime took hold in South London, but he really started to catch attention with like these really radically open and introspective freestyles where he'd talk about everything from his relationship with his dad to his relationship with his other family members, his mum, his sisters. Uh, his little brother, he'd talk about um, his own, I guess, journeys with relationships, but in a in a way you haven't really heard about before, a real honesty that wasn't just about, he'd almost admit to his own flaws in a way that I guess you don't really see men speak about in a lot of ways. And that really started to catch attention because a lot of people could relate to what he was saying. And, and in terms of as, as far as rap went, it was like he became like one of the most impactful artists of his time period. And then he unfortunately passed away in 2019. And the book looks to kind of tell the story of his rise, his beginnings, the impact of his music, but also how his people and his community have tried to keep his name alive since he passed away, which is a massive part of the book. Because I think it really shows the culture that exists in South London and like this new South London identity that has emerged um, in recent years. If you speak to anyone from, from South London, very proud it's like a not unusual for them to be very proud and i think um i really wanted to capture like what is that idea of south london culture and i think his story and music really reflected and represented that moving over to the uh, west midlands then so pirate radio is something that's obviously was obviously very important in all of these communities that we're talking about but you go into some detail in the um in the west midlands the birmingham chapters so tell us something about the rise of pirate radio in Birmingham. Yeah, pirate radio is such a huge factor, as you say, a huge factor in all the regions. But what I wanted to do with the book was to, through each region, show um, a real base for the music and a foundation. So South London was kind of more about the street DVDs. We'll get onto Wales, which was more about the youth centres, but um, the West Midlands was more about the pirate radio stations. And there's such a long history and legacy of pirate radio stations in Birmingham. The story I first focused on is a guy called Cecil Morris from uh, Hansworth. He ran a, a station called PCRL, which stood for People's Community Radio Link. And he started it in the 80s after the Hansworth um, riots. And it really becomes like the radio station from, I guess, he starts it in his bedroom. And it then really becomes like a, like almost like a heartbeat of the Caribbean community in, um, in and around in the city of Birmingham throughout the 80s and 90s. They, of course, like a play and he'd initially tried to get a show on the uh, BBC West Midlands and BRMB radio, who were the two big radio stations at the time in Birmingham. And he said, look, like there's a big population of Caribbean people here, of black people here, and we just want a reggae show to be able to hear our music. And when he went to meet some of the bosses in those offices, in those meetings, they kind of laughed him out, laughed him out of their office and said, we look, we, we have like one ethnic show that runs like once every two weeks on a Sunday, like that's kind of fine for you. And he was like, well, I'm just going to go and start my own radio station then. And um, none of them took him seriously, but that's what he did essentially. And started, um, yeah, DJ and brought in DJs, put together in a schedule and started running a fully fledged, unlicensed radio station. 
um, started having talk shows and the meaning of it started to evolve as people in the community would start to say, like, we really need this. This is something that we love um, and cherish. And they'd even announce, go far as far as like they announced when somebody would pass away in the community, they'd announce the funeral details and let people know who are maybe family members in other parts of the West Midlands that what was going on. So it became like more than just about music. It really became like, a, as I say, a heartbeat for the community in that way. But that he really set like the foundations for Pirate Radio in Birmingham. And you have like a lot of the uh, first and second and third generation of Grime MCs in Birmingham grew up listening to that station. All of the people I interviewed in Birmingham who were maybe in their, as I said, 30s, late 20s, they all remembered listening to PCRL with their parents, their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles. And then in turn, they start to operate on Pirate Radio stations too. So there's a real legacy and generational link there that goes right back to the likes of Cecil Morris, who I think only came to the UK in the 60s or so when he was like 14. Now, setting aside the fact that there is, obviously, we'll we'll come back to this in the context of rap and grime towards Mm. the end of the interview, but there is obviously, along with the history of black music in Britain, there is a history of the criminalisation of of black music in Britain, Mm. Uh, going right back to, you know, blues parties. And as I said, we'll return to this. But in terms of pirate radio... I was still shocked in the book at the effort. I mean, I, I'm 52. I live through this. I remember the battle against pirate radio. But at this distance, it seems so crazy, the effort that was put into stopping these radio stations. Yeah, it was, it was so surprising to hear. I think, A, like as you say, the effort to put into stop, the effort put into to make the pirate radio stations. I think Cecil Morris, I think he set up over like 600 times or something like that. And he kind of had like, was waging this, uh, DTI were like kind of waging this battle against him to take him off air but he he said that um, the radio station got so big that it started eating into the listenership of um, the BBC and the BRMB radio because at a point they started employing um, they started having DJs and hosts who were from the um, Punjabi community from who were white they had all of they were having all of this uh, Bromley's of course like one of the most diverse cities in the UK and they their radio station was starting to reflect that I think it was, they, he said it was starting to eat into the listenership. So they really wanted to clamp down on him now, also from a commercial point of view, because they were like, who's this guy in it? And on his pirate radio station, that is essentially being, becoming a huge disruption. And they took him to court numerous, numerous times. And then I think he eventually went to, I can't remember, it's not the Supreme Court, but um, that's the lengths they had to go to to kind of get him off air. And then they kind of threatened him the last time in, I think, the early 2000s when he was pulled off air. They said, if you come back, you're going to essentially have to do some jail time. And um, they've all put up, uh, I think it was 20, 30,000 each to uh, use that to essentially sue him. So they kind of, yeah, kind of muffled the pirate radio station in that sense. But it was a huge effort by the authorities and some of the commercial radio stations too, which was really surprising to read about and really inspiring to hear about his persistence in the face of that. So the, I guess the the other main protagonist of the um, the Birmingham sections, the West Midlands sections of the book, is Desper, uh, a young aspiring record mogul. Tell me something about who he is. Yeah, Desper is a uh, he's a uh, yeah as you say, a music mogul. He's a mu- he runs a music management company and record label in Birmingham called B eighty three, and uh, he was originally from Walsall, which is like I guess like Black Country. And he'd always had this vision of wanting to own his own music company one day. But he grew up in at a time where I guess a lot of those small towns outside of Birmingham and in the wider West Midlands were, I guess, still suffering from, um, I guess, like deindustrialization in a lot of ways. So grew up in a place called Darleston at a time where they're socially and economically very bleak. And his family life was also like very turbulent. He mentions in the book about losing 
both um i think it was three family members by the time he was 16 his uncle his brothers his dad his little brother and i guess with that starts to move forward it tries to move forward in his life and using music as a way to almost help him through that and so the story of him in the book is about him trying to build this music company but it's also like a deeper story about him trying to find family again and i think he finds family through music for a lot of the musicians he ends up working with a lot of them become like brothers to him but also he's also starts his own family and then his life really becomes about trying to make sure his children never experience the life that he did and wanting to leave a real legacy for them so the book kind of looks at that as he sets out on that journey too which is probably like the most i guess emotionally moving part of the book a lot of people mention his story and i guess where it ends up with his daughter and he it has quite a nice um, and happy ending for him which was which has been lovely to actually see in real time you mentioned at the beginning of the book as a sort of caveat that these genres in the uk are quite male based quite masculine so while we're here in the Birmingham section, can you tell us a little bit about Lady Leisure? Yeah, yeah, Lady Leisure. She was like somebody that kind of bucked the trend for that because, yeah, one thing I noticed whilst doing the book was that you'd hear the stories and it, it was mainly all just men. And a lot of people would just say to me that with like pirate radio stations, if was, as we've spoken about with the youth clubs, a lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable sending their little sister there, their niece there, or their daughters there because they were like very testosterone heavy, violent places at times. But Lady Leisha was kind of someone who bucked that trend completely in Birmingham. Uh, and she, yeah, was just confident and just went in there and was competing with all the guys in the pirate radio stations and in, and in the youth clubs and really becomes like one of Birmingham's breakout grime, first breakout grime um, stars. She like gets like a hit called um, the Queen's Speech series that she did, which somehow goes viral in like the early stages of music going viral on, on social media. And she starts touring the world through it and I think inspires like a lot of the MCs in the city to be like, oh, like you can actually be from Birmingham um, and have a viable career as an MC or a rapper. You don't have to necessarily be from London to be able to do that. And her story was really um, reflective of that, too. And so the last area you cover then is South Wales, and it has a sort of different feel to the Birmingham and South London sections of the book. Um, so tell us something about why South Wales. Yeah, South Wales is such a... I enjoyed my time in Cardiff and Newport a lot. As I was saying, like I really wanted to explore what his life looked like in contemporary Britain. And I knew to do that, I'd ha a, have to leave London, but I'd also have to leave England. And Wales felt like a really good place to really tell some of those stories because to be fair I, I did i knew nothing about wells when i first rocked up to wells one of the main people in there phil from a band called asteroid boys i sent him an email in the dark one day i was like look i'm writing this book i'd love to come and interview you and he was like okay the first day we spent i think eight hours together and meeting each other and i found about this fascinating history of the cardiff docks and one of the biggest ethnic minority oldest ethnic minority communities in britain that is actually in cardiff in a place called tiger bay in butte town because the docks would bring people from all across Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, um, and they would all live in this like kind of multi-ethnic enclave, just, yeah, just on the, in the inner cities of Cardiff. And that was, of course, they'd bring music um, and culture with them. And so Cardiff has like this really unknown history of, of black music, of black community, black culture, but also like wider communities. Phil was, was Cypriot and there were a lot of other people of other nationalities there. So it has a really different tone because Cardiff has such a different story to like a London or a Birmingham. And I guess mu the music isn't as maybe popular and as prevalent there and the communities aren't as big. And so for more for them, it was about trying to establish themselves as, as Welsh MCs in a scene that never had really looked to Wales before. And it talks about the process of them 
doing that. And I guess some of the pitfalls along the way of young people getting into the music industry without necessarily understanding everything, some of the darkness and dark sides that the music industry entails too. Tell us something about Asteroid Boys then and who they were. Yeah, so Asteroid Boys were a band from Cardiff and they had, a, I think, five, they had a few members, five members, but the three members I focus on is a guy called Trax, uh, the producer Del and another MC, Benji. And they're Del and uh, Benji and Trax are from Cardiff. Del was from Newport. And it looks at, I guess they were the first breakout kind of Welsh grime slash rap group. They blended like grime and rap with kind of punk and dubstep. But mainly punk because um, Bitter Tracks was a big, big punk head growing up, as well as being a massive grime head. And they kind of had this weird mongrel genre of music that they would make. And they'd start to attract cult followers who were into punk, cult followers who were into grime. And it really kind of took off. Um, and they started to tour like across Europe. They tour across the country loads of times, support huge punk acts, support huge rap acts on tour as well. And became like, yeah, one of the first breakthrough acts for... Um, Welsh MCs and I think also uh, I guess like giving a different image to the I guess exported image of Wales in a way which I guess a lot of people would think of Wales as like I guess like quite leafy quite green um, I guess like northern Wales in a lot of senses but they were talking about a Wales and a Cardiff that was the complete opposite of I guess a Wales and Cardiff that was more akin to some of the rappers that you hear coming out of London and Birmingham and so I think it's quite also interesting what they added to like the national conversation there but the, the book looks at their rise their beginnings their rise and their ultimate um splitting apart as a band and looks at i guess the personal lives of those three individuals as they navigate those things just one more thing then and i said I, I wanted to come back to the the sort of permanent criminalization of different types of black music and the rise of british rap and and grime again the sort of tabloid view of it is that there is often violence involved and guns and things uh, but i think here more specifically i want to talk about the idea that just the very concept the very music began to be criminalised during that period where venues would be closed down if they were going to put on grime shows or, you know, artists themselves started to be told that they couldn't actually basically write music that was talking mm. about their own life experiences because the music itself was criminalised. Tell us something about this sort of like ongoing criminalization of the music, which obviously is, this is a something that these artists have to sort of deal with and have to combat in a way that musicians in other genres just never have to think about yeah the criminal it's so funny i didn't it was only after finishing the book that i realized that criminalization of the music is so present but it wasn't something that was the top of my mind but even in just writing about the music it's naturally there if that makes sense like so solid are of course targeted by the police they're targeted by the government they're targeted by the tabloids and is and essentially shut down but that happens generation after generation it happens to jungle music it then happens to garage it happened to grime with a lot of grime MCs. I think the prime minister criticised grime at one point and a lot of the raves being shut down. Things like Form 696, which made it very, very hard to even put on grime nights across London. And then the same is now happening with UK rap and UK drill. Far more explicitly with even a lot of drill artists being told, you can't say certain words in a song. You have to hand over your lyrics to the police before you put them out so we can check to see if they're appropriate. Or a lot of people now, I guess, being convicted on the basis of their lyrics. But I think... Um, there's so many things going on there. I think one of the things is that the music being, of course, blamed for violence, for youth violence, for gun violence, I think has almost been scapegoated in a lot of ways because when you really look into youth violence and um, gun violence, like the causes of it are, have been so well explained and exhaustively documented by 
all kind of researchers, sociologists, um, people who really do this for a living. And you see the same things over and over again about poverty, social exclusion, school exclusion, um, breakdowns in the family home. Like these are the causes that can repeatedly come up, but those are really long-term things to fix. And I think whilst, and so I think as a result of that, I think rather than maybe taking responsibility for saying what we've got wrong in terms of, uh, I guess, governments, local authorities, even police at times, I think it's maybe a bit easier to say the most visual examples of this problem is happening in the music and therefore the music is causing it. And I think that's a big, um, I think is a big part of it in that to admit, to acknowledge that the music wasn't causing it would be to acknowledge that there's been, like the government have actually failed a lot of young people across the country, which I don't think a lot, I don't think, um, uh, yeah, the government is necessarily willing to uh, take that, that stance. So I've been talking to Anif Yuk Ekpudum. We'll be talking about his debut book, Where We Come From, Rap, Home and Hope in Modern Britain, which is out now from Faber. Neef, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. And uh, thank you so much for the time as well. I really enjoyed chatting. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.